0: me for this episode of Mount Nebel's Leaders Lift. I'm your host, Greg Cunningham, and I look forward to being a part of your leadership journey. Today's episode is gonna focus on team building. Now, over the last few episodes, we've covered a lot of ground on individual relationships, and those individual relationships play a large role in developing a team, and we will review a few of those topics, but the majority of the time will be spent on the team. This episode will have more of a professional team focus, but there will still be some great insights for those of you with families, on school or community teams, etc. In Story Time, I'll share an example of one of the results of deliberately building a team, and I have another book recommendation for you. And then for a few minutes, I'll share some of the ways I've applied the principles in that book in different aspects of my life. And then it's on to the main topic. Before I dive into story time, just a reminder to hit that subscribe or follow button if you haven't done so already. And if you have, pick someone in your circle and share the podcast with them that will really help expand the audience to those that could use the lifting we do on this show. And I'd also love to get your feedback on the podcast. If you go to www.mountainebconsulting.com/survey, www.mtneboconsulting.com/survey. I'll put a link in the show notes. You'll find a very short survey with only one required question. On that page, you'll also have an opportunity to get on my email list or to receive my favorite books list. It's time for story time. In one of my leadership roles, I had spent a couple of years working on building a rock-solid management team. I had two people managers, someone managing QA, and another managing training and other related programs. We worked very, very well as a team. We were set up as a service desk, which at the time meant we were really a call center, but doing internal technical support. And as part of the evolution of our team and organization, we were working on a ranking system that would help us guide our technicians toward our key goals. As we were having that discussion over the course of several weeks, we had come to an agreement on all of the key areas but one. I don't remember which area it was, but it was super critical and we needed buy-in, and I'll share later in this episode what I mean by buy-in, from everyone. We got to the point where we had one people manager, so half the technicians reported to him, that just wasn't on board with the plan, and I didn't see a way for us to get him there. At that point, I knew I was gonna have to make the final decision, and I was on the same page with the rest of the team. I also knew that he was gonna have to sell this and implement it with his team. So what do you do in this scenario? I could have just said, I've heard enough and we're gonna do X and assume everyone will be good to go, but that only has a 50-50 or less chance of working. The alternate approach I took was to take a step back and cover some of the core principles of our team, much of which we'll cover later in this episode. I focused on trust, everyone getting a voice, and then all getting on the same page. We then proceeded to talk through both sides of the issue at hand, and I gave this manager the floor to take us through his objection. It was interesting that instead of doing that, he said something like the following, I don't agree with this particular item, but I've had a chance to present my side, and I see I'm not gonna sway anyone. At this point, I will commit to going along with the rest of the team so we can move forward. This was huge in my book. Not only to hear this coming from someone on the team, but then to see him stick to this over the next several months as we implemented the program. Not once did he say it wasn't my idea, or I told you so, or any of those kinds of things. Not once did he fail to do his part to support the team. He truly bought in even though he disagreed. This is the kind of team that you want to lead one that allows everyone to have a voice, but also have each member of the team be willing to put aside their own ideas and priorities for what is right for the broader team, and then move forward as if they never disagreed in the first place. Still today, I have a huge amount of respect for how he handled this situation. And if you're managing a team and listening to this episode, this is where you want to get. To be willing to disagree, to be willing to agree to disagree, and then move forward as if there was no disagreement at all. For today's Little Lift recommendation, I wanna share another Patrick Lencioni book. This one is called The Three Signs of a Miserable Job. I think it's probably has a more positive title today. They changed that at some point, but I'll put an Amazon affiliate link in the show notes. This book is great for leaders of all levels, but is really good for managers looking to find ways to directly influence the performance of individual contributors. <laughs> Instead of diving right into today's topic on T building, I wanna talk about at least one of the principles from Three Signs of a Miserable Job that I just mentioned and how I've applied it. The principle is in measurement. The author jokes around that that, that a measurement may not even be a word, but I really like it. For our discussion today, think of this not as a lack of me- measurement in general, but more of a lack of measurements that meet the following criteria. The individual can measure it themselves and they have control over hitting the measurement. In last week's episode, I talked about how online banking sales early in my career. That's a good example of this. The official measurement existed, and that was how many new customers signed up for online banking. The associates could measure this one themselves, but they didn't have control over hitting the measurement. Sure, they could influence it by the number of offers they made, which is what I talked about, but they couldn't control who said yes, how many calls they took, and a bunch of other factors. But the measurement I had them use was how many offers they made. They could control that. They could offer on every call they took, or at least most of them. And they could use something as simple as a sticky note or a tick mark on how many offers they made. That way they could keep track of it. It was very, very simple. Now over time, they learned about how many offers they needed to make to get a sale. With that information, they could then set daily goals goals on how many offers they could make. So why was this better than just measuring the number of sales they made? I already mentioned the fact that they couldn't control the actual number of sales. So think about the call center agent that almost exclusively got calls in a given day from customers that weren't comfortable doing their banking on the internet. Remember, this was decades ago when online banking was just getting started. Those agents could go home at the end of the day frustrated that they didn't hit their sales goal for the day, but they really didn't even have a chance to do so. Now compare that with the agent that had a goal to make 10 offers, regardless of the answer, And at the end of the day, they could look at their tick marks and see that they had met their goal. Now, Which is most likely to be motivated to keep at it the next day? This approach goes beyond just meeting a goal like this. If you have to wait for someone else to tell you that you hit a goal or metric, or for your manager to tell you that you did a good job, you could be waiting a long time. It's just not a good idea to put your happiness in someone else's hands. So as an individual, no matter what the company or even your personal performance goals are, you need to have measurements that you can measure on your own and do so as frequently as possible. Daily is best. As leaders, we need to take a look at the various performance measurements we have in place for those we lead. How frequently do they have access to those measurements? Can they pull the data themselves? Those are just a couple of questions we can evaluate but maybe more importantly should be the question of how can I help them set shorter term controllable goals that they can measure themselves and that are likely to have an impact on the larger metrics. That's what I had to do in our sales call center. When I have led higher level individual contributors and other managers or leaders, this becomes even more important. The higher up you go, the more your goals and metrics are likely to be spread out over longer periods of time. So it's even more important to have these self-measurable and controllable goals. In my personal life, I don't worry so much about exact numbers. That seems to be much more on the professional side, but I still need to have goals that I can control and measure myself, and I've tried to teach this to my family and to the youth that I've worked with. For example, think about working with one of your kids in a particular area. Let's say they wanna try out for the school musical. It's fine to set the goal of being cast in a role but how much of that is within their control? What if there are 500 kids that try out? What if your kid is a young lady and the musical selected only has two roles for her and there are 50 others trying out for the same role? Those are just a couple of examples of things that they can't control. So yes, let them set the goal to be cast in the musical, but then you need to sit down with them and set goals around things you can control. That could be how much practice they do. Do they need a vocal coach, talking to the casting director, etc. Now, none of that guarantees that they'll be cast in a role, but if they know what they're going to do each day to work towards their goal, then they can focus on that. Now, at the end of the day, they will know if they met those goals or not. And if they don't get the role they wanted, of course they're going to be disappointed. But if they met all of their goals along the way, they'll eventually realize that they did their best. And if they want to try again for the next musical, they can make changes to the smaller goals and the plan to give themselves a better shot. This kind of an approach helps teach that it isn't always the results that are most meaningful. It can help us and them realize that sometimes the journey is of much greater value than the end result or destination. And that that lesson is reusable in all aspects of our life. So the next time you set a goal for yourself or work with someone else on a goal, think about this concept. It's fine to have the ultimate goal that isn't really within your control, but make sure there are another, make sure there are other measurements or goals that are within yours or their control and that can be measured by the individual themselves and see how this changes things. All right, so let's start talking about team building. I wanna start with a few foundational topics and then we can talk about some examples and techniques, things like that that you can apply with any team you're working with. Let's start off by defining your team. I'm not going to the dictionary for this, but I want you to think of your team as a combination of individuals you associate with and work towards a common set of goals. This gets pretty straightforward in the professional world as we generally have multiple teams that we're a part of. In our personal lives, it might be a little less obvious. I think of my wife and I as one team. I think of us and my kids as a team. And you can expand that analogy out to extended family as well. You may also have a group of friends that you consider a team. I watch a lot of RV videos and I follow a family that's currently traveling in in Mexico with three other families. I would say that as a team, even if it's not a permanent one. And they even talked about that in one of their episodes. I mentioned earlier that in the professional world, we may belong to multiple teams. And I'd like to just briefly talk about that subject here. If you're a leader, you most likely have a manager and peers that would comprise one team. Then you have direct reports, that's another team. And then if they have direct reports, that makes up your department and that is yet another team. So why is it important to recognize the various teams you belong to? Well, let me have you think about a question. If all three of those teams had competing priorities, which ones take precedence? Let's say that your managers have come to you and said that the individual contributors working for them are burned out and just can't keep up the pace of work. Those managers are also feeling burned out and you can feel it as well. Your boss then comes to you and states that due to a massive set of orders, your teams are gonna to have to step up even more. How do you handle that situation? This is a concept called first team. Who is your first team? In most situations, I would argue that your first team would be your boss and your peers. That doesn't mean in the scenario above, you don't have a discussion about the impact of the extra workload and try to find a solution. But ultimately, that's probably where your priorities have to start. Now, in a personal context, this gets more difficult and might be more fluid. But for me, I would argue that my wife is a higher priority than my kids, my parents, etc. I don't want to go into that any deeper because it really just depends on your specific scenario. But I wanted to throw that out there. I also realize that at different times in life, my priorities do shift. Now, after you have defined and got settled into your first team, then you can start working on developing the team or teams you're responsible for. Your first step should be to define your role in the team's development. Some of the options may include direct responsibility for development, guidance, support, etc. But make sure that you are not putting yourself in the do their development category. Let me lay out a couple of examples. If you're a leader of managers, then you could have a few of these roles when it comes to guidance. For more experienced managers, you may take more of that guidance role. For less experienced, you may start out with more direct input into their development plans and then back that down. For both of those scenarios, you would certainly provide support. Now, if you're also trying to help managers develop their own teams, then it may be in more of an advisory role when they come to you and ask how to work with a particular individual. In this latter scenario, it's extremely important that you don't take over for them, even if it may not be the way you would do it, or you can see that it's probably not going to work. I talked about this in my last episode. It's important to let folks learn on their own, even if it means letting them fall or fail just a bit. This is especially true for other managers or leaders, as they need to become more and more self-reliant to keep making progress. Now, regardless of any of these scenarios, one of your key roles will be to ensure that the direction is clear to everyone. This ties back into the discussion earlier on your first team. You would get your overarching goals and direction from your first team. Then you need to translate that into goals, direction, and even meaning for the other teams you're responsible for. Let's focus for just a second on defining meaning for the expanded team. Your job as a leader is to understand where the meaning is in your own responsibilities first. And hopefully you recognize that one of those is to create the right environment for your teams. Now you can do that in several ways. One is to help those you directly lead understand how, they, how what they do makes a difference. Then you need to be available to assist them in doing the same thing for those they lead. Ultimately, every member of the team needs to know how what they do makes a difference for someone else. That could be the team, just their boss, or another individual. And Now, another way you create the right environment for your team I talked about last week, and that's to create an environment where best effort is expected, even demanded, that's the intense, versus a tense environment where only the results matter regardless of your best efforts. I'm not going to go into that a whole lot right now. Now, Building trust is also crucial for all of this work. Episode six was all about trust, so I don't want to dive too deeply here. Just as a refresher, the trust I'm talking about revolves around having a mutual relationship that can assume positive intent, give benefit of the doubt, and assume that the motives and efforts of each other are about what is best for the team, not just for the individual. As the leader, you need to build relationships of trust with everyone that you lead. It's more obvious when it comes to your direct reports, but requires more deliberate action to build it with their staff that you may not interact with as much. Department and team meetings are a way to build this trust, so are skip levels. But the number way you will build trust at that level is by by building rock solid trust with their manager first. If you have that level of trust with those closer to them in the leadership chain, meaning their manager, they will be more likely to give it to you as well. Now, in addition, you need to ensure that you practice what you preach. That's obvious. If you're not consistent, they're gonna see it and they're not gonna trust what you say. Now this leads into the need to be humble and transparent. You're gonna make mistakes. That's actually a good thing. I know none of us like to make mistakes, but it's good because it gives you an opportunity to show that it's okay to make mistakes. That is the key to the intense and not tense environment. If your direct team and then those that report to them believe that you never make mistakes, they will assume that you have the same expectations for them. And we all know that that's not realistic. Now think of the power of you stepping up in an all hands for your department and talking about a mistake you made. I'm not talking about you just saying you were wrong and apologizing, but take that to another level. You can explain what led you to make the decision in the first place, what results you expected, what had to happen for it to be successful. Then you can share what actually happened, your thoughts on why it went sideways, and then what you learned from it and would do differently the next time. This kind of an example from you can go a long way to helping your various teams realize that they too can own up to their mistakes. And that will remove some of the pressure that they will naturally feel around striving for perfection. It also teaches them how you expect them to cope with their own mistakes and reinforces that if they make good decisions, give their best effort, and that if it doesn't go according to plan, they can own up to it, learn from it, and move on without fear of extreme punishment, getting fired. That's a great lesson for you to teach them. This kind of an approach also reinforces the need for transparency from all. If you combine this with being willing to admit when you are struggling, when you believe the team is struggling or just when things aren't going well, you can continue to create the kind of environment where folks can work without fear. Now through all of this, you need to have a generally positive and optimistic attitude. I'm not saying that you need to fake happiness or positivity because no matter how many times I've heard people say fake it till you make it, I just don't believe that it's effective in the long run. What I do mean by this is that even when things are not going well, you need to have optimism that the team can make it through whatever tough times you encounter. This is about expressing confidence and believing in the abilities of your team. If you built the environment where best effort is the standard, this is much easier to do. If you built an environment where only the results matter, regardless of the team's ability to influence them, then it's gonna be much, much more difficult. Now, if you want more info on this, go back to my episode called The Power of Being Positive, released on January 11, 2023. There's some great suggestions in that episode for working on being more positive. So those are several foundational items we should be working on as leaders to develop our teams, both professional and personal. Each item needs to be applied in a way that is best for the individual circumstances. Figuring out which, when, and how might require some trial and error, so don't be afraid to experiment. Now, for the remainder of the episode, I want to talk about some more practical topics that I believe all of us have, are, or will encounter multiple times in our lives. Now, before we dive into part two, just a quick reminder that if you're enjoying this episode, remember to subscribe or follow. It's free and share it with others in your circle. Reviews are also a great way to spread the word. And if you want more leadership and personal development resources, be sure to visit my website at www.mountainebillconsulting.com. While you're there, you can also sign up for my email list. As a leader, one of your primary goals should be to put those you lead in the place of most potential. That applies to the team as well as each individual. You have direct responsibility to do this with those for whom you are directly responsible. For those that report up through your direct reports or those you may have matrix responsibility for, think about project teams, it should be your goal to help them in this area as well. In our personal why personal lives, this is also critical. In family, family relationships, you would think that this falls 100% on the parents, but that just isn't a realistic expectation. I remember reading a Western novel that talked about the relationships and responsibilities that aunts and uncles had in some of the uh, American Indian tribes. In today's world, we're seeing a sharp increase in the number of grandparents raising their grandkids, or at least taking a much larger role in their up- upbringing. I've worked with youth enough to know how much a leader that is not part of the family can also influence their development. One of the reasons I loved scouting so much is that it gave the leaders an opportunity to interact with the youth outside of church and other influences. Some of the youth had great home environments. Others had much larger challenges at home. So working with them in an environment away from those challenges gave us an opportunity to talk about what they wanted out of life and to help them develop the life skills that would get them where they wanted to go. Sure, they learned how to pitch a tent and cook, but they also learned what it meant to plan, to problem solve, to work with others, and to lead. Now, those are skills that will be with them for the rest of their lives. When working with professional teams, there are a few things that you need to consider when trying to put the team in the place of most potential. First, you need to know the individuals, similar to how I've talked about knowing yourself. You need to know what they want out of life, what their strengths and weaknesses are, and hopefully know a bit about each of their personality styles should give you an idea of the role that they can play on the team, not just how effective they will be at their more traditional duties. Let me talk through an example here. Let's say you're the leader of a management team. You have three managers and two individual contributors. So each of them has either a team to manage or a set of individual responsibilities that they need to own. And that's about as far as a lot of leaders would go. But if you really want to help the individuals and the team move to their place of most potential, think about some of these questions what unique skills do they each have? One manager is really good with numbers. One individual contributor is passionate about recognition. Another manager likes the social aspects. So if you really wanna maximize the team's potential, those type of skills need to be taken into account and you should get creative on how to give them these quote unquote extra assignments that they will flourish at but will also benefit the whole team. For the individual contributor that loves recognition, you could assign them to work with one of the managers to develop the department's recognition program. For the manager that loves numbers, you could assign them to work with the individual contributor that is responsible for all of the metrics. And then the manager that loves the social aspects could take ownership of all the social parties, that kinds of stuff for the department. I think I've mentioned this before, but the social and recognition pieces are not something that are always top of mind for me but I am really good with numbers and analysis. So I always look for someone on my teams to handle the more fun things and I take on more of the analytics. This is an example of how once you understand the individual strengths and weaknesses of those on your team, you then can roll that up to the team as a whole. You should identify gaps and make a plan to fill them. Let's say that no one on the management team is really passionate about the social stuff. How do you fill that gap? My guess is, at least one of their direct reports would be willing to take on an assignment to fill that gap. It's a great development assignment for a high potential looking to take the next step. The other approach would be to look to hire someone that has that passion when the opportunity arises. Overall, this rolls up something like this. Get to know your folks as mentioned, roll up the strengths and weaknesses of the team, then you build individual and team development plans. Most leaders are at least somewhat familiar with individual development plans, Those individual plans should roll up into your team development plan. And the plan should include goals and action plans to fill gaps in skill sets and how you as a team are going to work towards your collective goals and the team's collective potential. Now, the other thing you need to do as the leader is to help your managers, think of the same example I just mentioned, learn how to put their folks in the place of most potential as well. It's the same basic steps, getting to know them, identifying the right opportunities for them to grow, and then providing support. But if you have a younger, meaning less professionally experienced management team, they may never have seen this happen. It's unfortunate, but there are just not enough leaders that will focus on putting those they lead in the place of most potential. Your job will be to help them understand how you are doing this with them and then help them apply these same principles to those that they are leading directly. Now, one last topic on potential, and that's what do you do in the situation where the place of most potential is not within your organization or when you can't identify the place of most potential. In those circumstances, it's time to practice courage. If you have a high potential performer that's absolutely crushing it, then you need to have the courage to help them find the right next step somewhere else if that's where they need to go. Don't let fear or your ego get in the way of helping them move on. If your top performing manager is ready for the next step and you're unable to provide it, help them find it somewhere else. And the other side of this is when you just can't identify the place of most potential because there are so many performance issues. If you've done all you can to help them get to a stable point and they just aren't going to make it, then you need to have the courage to help them find success elsewhere. I'm not saying you give up on them, and I'm definitely not saying you just let them go. There is a way to have these performance discussions and turn it into a positive for them. It's probably a much broader topic than we have time for here today. Another circumstance that we're all gonna run into is the n- need to build consensus. And I wanna approach this just a little bit differently than maybe you've heard in the past. I don't see building consensus, meaning everyone is on the same page as the real goal. What I work to achieve, especially with high-performing leadership teams, is buy-in. And for me, buy-in is a willingness to engage in the discussion and then support the ultimate decision, regardless of whether you agreed with it or not. Now think about the example from Storytime earlier in this episode. That manager did not agree with the decision, but he was engaged in the debate and then fully supported the final decision. That's what we should be looking for as part of developing our team. If you can get your team to the point where they can all buy in, even when there is disagreement, you can accomplish some great things. And in our personal lives, this might just be a bit different. Think about the family trying to decide what to do for a family vacation. Parents just wanna be able to spend time with the family doing something memorable. The teenagers are going to prioritize staying connected to their friends while the younger kids just want to have as much fun as possible. So how do you get behind in this type of a situation? Well, it's not always easy, and in this case, you may end up with a compromise that gets everyone at least some of what they wanted. Maybe it's a camping trip to a lake, but you make sure that you stay somewhere that has cell connections, but you set rules around smartphone usage. Or you decide on a trip out of state to the beach, amusement parks, etc., If you can give at least everyone some of what they wanted, you can get buy-in and hopefully not have as much of a tension-filled vacation as happens sometimes. When it comes to getting teams to buy-in, here's some things to think about. These principles apply regardless if this is our professional team or our families. First, start up with a clear articulation of what you're trying to accomplish. For the family, it's we need to decide on where we're spending our family vacation. For work, let's say we're trying to decide on who to promote. Second, as the leader, you need to set the parameters. For the family, it could be things like when the vacation will be, is it optional or required. Definitely set this expectation up front with the older teenagers. For the promotion, you may wanna set the criteria over who could be considered and ensure that the team knows what the promotion entails, responsibilities, pay raises, any of that kind of stuff. Third, make sure everyone is crystal clear on how the decision will be made. For the family, ultimately mom and dad will decide as they have to pay for it and manage most of the logistics. For the promotions, make sure the team knows if you're making the ultimate decision or if it'll be something like majority rules. And fourth, let everyone have a voice. This is probably the most important one. Everyone, including the youngest kids or the newest manager, need to have an opportunity to express their opinion and give input. That doesn't mean everyone's opinions or ideas have equal weight but they need to have a chance to express themselves. This is a step where hopefully on a solid team, you'll see productive debate and conflict. In our promotion example, you would want each manager to feel like they could advocate for those that they have been working with to get that promotion. They also need to feel empowered to point out the positives and challenges they see with anyone else being considered, not just their own teams. For example, the QA manager should feel empowered to say that while an individual has good scores, they just don't seem to have that positive of an attitude when talking with customers. The manager may not be aware of this, but if the team trusts and feels safe, they can have a debate about it. As the debate happens, regardless of it being in the family or the manager scenario, your role as a leader should be to facilitate the discussion and make sure that no one feels like they're getting run over. Now this may mean you have to hold some back, especially for those of us that always tend to jump right in and then draw out opinions and input from those that are quieter. If you have a teenager that absolutely doesn't want to go on the vacation, they might just sit there and try to be silent, knowing that they're going to resist no matter what. It takes some finesse to get them to at least share their opinion. Now, this same thing happens in a professional environment if trust is not there, but it can also happen if someone is just struggling. So learn to get good at drawing out all opinions. Now, once you believe that everyone has had a chance to express their opinion, then you need to move forward with how you said the decision was going to be made. If the majority of the team votes for the individual to be promoted, then move it forward. If it's the family vacation, make the decision and then starting, start letting everyone participate in the planning to the extent that it makes sense. This may be a way to help even the most grumpy teenager to move forward. Maybe they'll get from grumpy to just sulky. Now, sometimes you can't get full buy-in. The case of the family vacation is a good example, but you cannot always hold up a decision for 100% buy-in. When you do have someone that won't buy in, it's a good idea to tackle that one-on-one. One thing to evaluate here is if this is an isolated incident or if there's a pattern. If you have a manager that is never gonna support someone on another team getting promoted over someone on their own, then you have a bigger problem that you need to address. If it's an isolated incident, then a private discussion with them to figure out what's going on could hopefully set them on the right path. As for the sulky teenager, well, That's also something you need to address, but I'm going to refrain from giving advice there. I've had four kids go through all of those phases, and each one needed to be handled differently. But I will say that you need to be deliberate and not just let what happens happen. Now, one of the things I think you need to do to develop your team is to deal with the sense of entitlement that seems so prevalent in the world today. This is something I struggle with, so let me see if I can lay it out. And the generations previous to mine, most everyone had to work so hard to manage just to get by in life. Everything was a struggle. And I grew up learning that if I wanted to make it or have it better than my parents, I was gonna have to work for it. And when we first got married, we certainly struggled. My wife still remembers going to the grocery store and adding up the total as she put things into the basket. And I know a lot of you have had similar experiences. So with that background, I struggled to understand this sense of entitlement or the idea that I don't have to work or do my part, but I still get the reward. I saw this in a lot of youth sports, and I certainly saw it when we were hiring young folks into our call center environment. Some of these individuals got extremely upset when you told them they needed to improve something, or they were surprised when there were consequences for not showing up to work and not telling anyone. At times, I really struggled to stay cool, calm, and collected when having some of these conversations. They were the same individuals that were upset when they got passed over for raises or promotions when they were barely performing well enough to keep their jobs. It was like they expected to have some the same perks or benefits as the person that was the top performer. They didn't seem to think they had to work for any of those opportunities. I hope that gives you an idea of what I mean by a sense of entitlement. If you want more examples, just take a look at social media or news sites and see how many stories are out there about situations where someone thought they could do whatever they wanted with no consequences pretty sure you're going to see plenty of those so how do you deal with it for me it starts when you hire someone when i do an interview i have three goals first is to identify if the individual is a good fit for the team put the skills aside second is to identify if they have the potential to do the job and this is where skills comes in And third is to make sure that they understand clearly what will be expected of them so they can decide if the environment is gonna be a good fit for them as well. Has to be a good fit on both sides. I used to be able to say something like, my expectation is that you'll do the job we ask you to do and for that, you'll get your paycheck, period, end of story. I'm not recommending you use that verbiage in any more or in any of your interviews, but you do need to find a way to help them understand what the minimum performance should be and then what they will get in return for it. And then also help them understand that anything above and beyond that depends on effort, how we work together, their performance, etc. Now, one last topic for today. I was going through some materials from a church small business class, and one of the things that it cautioned was that we have to be careful not to help people so much that it ends up hurting them. Essentially, if there is something that they can do for themselves, we shouldn't do it for them. We can provide guidance and support, assistance when they get stuck, but we have to allow them to maintain ownership, otherwise we could actually stop their progress. This applies to professional teams for sure. If we have a manager that's excited to try a new approach with one of their associates, let them, assuming it's not against policy or something like that. In life, parents can do this without even thinking with their kids, just take over. I mentioned the whole process of applying for scholarships and colleges in a couple of episodes. My mom did most of that legwork for me, And I've heard that over and over from others, the same thing happened for them. I just chose to do it differently with my kids. I was there to help them answer questions and, of course, provide information they could only get from me. But I let them take ownership. I heard a story of a church leader. He talked about the pride he took in maintaining his yard. When one of his sons got old enough to help, it was all he could do to not just go in and do it himself. It took a lot of time and patience before the yard started to even remotely look like it used to. But the point was that the son needed to learn how to do it himself, and maybe his way wasn't his father's way. When we take on too much from others, we take away their ability to continue to become self-reliant. Here's another story. When I was working with a church group, we were gonna spend a week or so touring a bunch of church history sites. We expected this to be an amazing spiritual experience, but also to be a ton of fun for the hundreds of youth attending. One of the debates we had as leaders was around cell phones. You and I both know how attached the youth are to their cell phones, and there's a portion of the leaders that wanted to insist that we ask that all electronics be left behind. Now, I lobbied for a different approach. Instead of mandating they stay home and then dealing with most of the youth having snuck them into their luggage anyway, why not use this as a teaching opportunity? We would set an electronics policy and allow the youth to still have them to communicate, take pictures, and enhance their experience. Then when there were key moments where electronics were not appropriate, we would just ask that they be put away. That's what we ended up doing and it worked out just fine. Now I kept working with many of those youth long after that event and we rarely had issues with inappropriate electronic usage. Why? Because instead of mandating something that we knew would be resisted, we taught them that there was a time and a place for those electronics and then other times that they should be put away. This applies in our professional world. If we take ownership of an associate's development, then we're taking away from them the opportunity to learn and become more self-reliant. And we're also taking away their ability to teach others the same lesson. We're just creating a dependency on the leader. So that is not a good way to spread those important skills. I think that'll do it for today. If you're hearing this closing message, you probably have a lot to think about. Hopefully you can see how the relationship fundamentals and the concept of trust and potential lead up to developing individuals and teams to meet their fullest potential. Ultimately, it all comes down to the relationships you have with each individual, and then your personal relationship with the group as a whole. I don't profess to always get this kind of stuff right, but when I have focused on building the right relationships based on trust and mutual respect, and then work to help those I lead move towards their fullest potential, I've seen some amazing things happen. If you'll work on this, you'll see that as well. And I do want to throw out an offer there to you. If you're struggling to identify and or work towards your own potential or to get your team or individuals on your team to do the same, I'm here to help. Feel free to reach out via the contact form on my website. It's www.mountaineboconsulting.com contact. And I'd love to see if I can help lift you and those around you. Now, if you want to be notified of future episodes, hit the subscribe or follow button or follow LDRS LFT on Instagram. You can also visit our website for more great content and resources to help you on your leadership journey. And check out the show notes for all of the relevant links and takeaways from this episode. And don't forget to share the show out to those that can use its message. Thank you again for tuning in. Now go out there and keep lifting.